Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to make your virtual or in-person classroom a safe space for students as you embrace the principles of trauma-informed teaching. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Emily Santiago from the Center for Cognitive Diversity. I wanted to start by thanking the listeners who take a few seconds to rate or a minute or two to review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. It really makes a big difference in allowing new listeners to find Lesson Impossible. I also really appreciate those who take the time to forward an episode or two to a colleague or contact me through LessonImpossible.com to suggest themselves or others as future guests. As for today's amazing guest, as I was editing our conversation, I found myself wondering exactly how prevalent trauma is in our student populations. According to a 2007 study in the Archives of General Psychiatry, two-thirds of children reported at least one traumatic event by the age of 16. While we commonly think of trauma as experiencing violence, abuse, neglect, or loss, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has also long defined surviving a life-threatening illness or natural disaster as trauma as well. Schools themselves can be traumatizing spaces, especially for students of color or those that identify as LGBTQ+, as they experience the systematic racism and homophobia that pervades our educational systems, from district policies, interactions with staff and peers, or the curriculum itself. All of this to say, anyone working in education will come across a young person dealing with trauma, more so now with the disruption of a global pandemic. Fortunately, there is a growing body of research and many compassionate educators who are working hard to implement trauma-informed teaching practices such as this episode's guest and special agent, Emily Santiago. Emily and I spoke over Zencaster in June. Just before we begin our conversation, do you mind doing a quick intro to yourself, who you are, what you do? So my name is Emily Santiago, and I'm a licensed educational psychologist. I started my career in education about 22 years ago as a teacher, and I have been a teacher, a school psychologist, a wraparound facilitator, case management director, many different roles in schools, mainly focused on supporting the social-emotional needs of students. And most recently, I've become the executive director of the Center for Cognitive Diversity, and we offer a trauma-informed specialist certification program that's nationwide. It kind of strikes me that you've been on the social-emotional train for a lot longer than I think most teachers have been. It feels like the SEL stuff just kind of jumped to everyone's consciousness in the last to five, 10 years. What was it like being a pioneer and trying to talk to people about this before it was a thing that many people knew about? Well, I started my career working as an aide in a Montessori classroom in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and that really set a foundation for how important it is to maintain relationships, to give children agency, and to address the social-emotional needs of children in order to make sure that they can learn. 
And so when I was recruited to teach in Oakland, California, I took those skills with me and it served me well. So when, when I've been in schools and they've pushed me to start teaching just focused on academics, I've pushed back because I don't want to just start teaching reading without getting to know who my students are and what their needs are. And so I think I've had a great team of teachers that I've worked with over the years that that we've worked together really well to make sure that that's a priority in education. I think it's reduced my level of burnout as an educator. If I just focus on academics, then it's not meeting my needs and it's not meeting my students' needs. So, And that's why eventually when the pendulum shifted so far to, to standards and academics, I became a school psychologist so I could uh, advocate for that better in, in schools. There's a lot of work to do in in advocating, and I think this time of COVID-19 gives us an opportunity to do that. Everyone realizes how important it is, and if it's not working for kids, they're not connecting to education, and we have a steep drop-off in distance learning. So it pushes us to to change, to continue to engage our students. Absolutely, and this brings me to the the main topic of conversation that I, I wanted to speak to you about, which is trauma-informed teaching. And this is another one of those things where I feel like a year ago wasn't really on people's minds. I'd hear it a little bit here and there, especially when it came to issues of equity. But now that we're dealing with COVID-19 and it seems like it's now a universal trauma, not just individual traumas from different students, this seems to be being talked about a lot. And sometimes I'm getting conflicting definitions of what it is. So I guess my first question is, how would you define it? Well, it's trauma has always been there. Adversity has always been there. It's just become this term that's entering people's consciousness and awareness. For me, it's an opportunity for us to have an educational system that's based on compassion and innovation Because when we lean in and respond to the needs of students with trauma, we're making classrooms and schools that work best for everybody. So how I define trauma-informed education is uh, a system that focuses on the strengths of all students and promotes agency and empowerment and an opportunity for all. So when we talk about trauma-informed practices as a buzzword, some people start to think it means we need to find out what happened to every student, find out their traumatic experience, and connect to them in that way. And I don't think we need to do that. I think we need to assume that all students have experienced some form of adversity. It affects some of us in different ways, especially in this pandemic. We see the disproportional impact on our our Black families, on low-income families that have to keep working. So we have to keep that in mind when we're creating these systems that it's also about equity and access to opportunities. For me, uh, our program really focuses on building capacity within school districts because everybody's different, everybody's path to resilience is different. So we train people in their community to support and make changes within within that unique system. So if we're thinking about our stereotypical school system, which obviously doesn't necessarily exist because there's no platonic ideal or even unplatonic ideal, just 
one school system that fits everybody, but we're thinking lots of buildings and classrooms and you've got, you know, your school district uh, and then handfuls of high schools, more elementary schools, some middle schools that are, like we talked about, probably more academic focused than not. What are some of the changes that need to happen to this so-called traditional system to make it more trauma-informed? I think, number one, it comes down to relationships, prioritizing safe and stable relationships for students and for staff. And so when we're looking at distance learning right now, there's a huge barrier there to relationships. And there's a huge push to use technology to solve all our, our problems, which technology is going to help a lot. But it's it could become the priority instead of relationships. So we always have to come back to how are we ensuring that our students feel seen and heard by their teachers? And how are we ensuring that there's a level of organizational self-care for our educators? I know on past podcasts, you've had people on to talk about teacher burnout, and that's a huge topic in trauma-informed education that needs to be addressed. We can ask teachers to respond to the emotional needs of our students in compassionate and caring ways and to build relationships and to build connections in this tough time, but we also have to be there for our educators. So I think every school across across the world right now needs to be focused on that organizational well-being. How are we building communities of care and not just leaving it on our staff to to take care of themselves and be emotionally healthy and resilient. Uh, We really need to have some systems in place to do that so that they can listen to students and that they can respond and, and be compassionate when you're faced with behavior challenges or a lack of engagement. You need to have that built into our systems. I know that for me, I was when I was in the classroom, I was trying to build up like skills around emotional resilience with my students and incorporate that into my curriculum as one of the skills, um, along with academic skills. And the thing that really struck me, and I was open about this with my students, was like, you know, we're talking about this together, but I'm not the one teaching you, like I'm learning this with you and I'm realizing the places where all my gaps are in terms of my own emotional resilience. And it just struck me how this was really the first time, A, that I'd explicitly talked about it with my students, but B, that other than in therapy, that I'd ever really had it talked about with me explicitly. And such an important point, Aviva, that we have to be vulnerable We can't pretend to be perfect, especially in this time of the pandemic where there's so much stress, where there's no playbook for how to respond, that we are going to have a wide range of emotions. And to pretend that we don't or to pretend that you never get overwhelmed is is fake. And for our kids that are stressed, for kids that have experienced trauma, they think there's something wrong with them when they feel overwhelmed. They think there's something wrong with them when they have an emotional response that might be a trigger or something that that might not match the situation. And for educators to own that, like you did, is really empowering for students and it makes them uh, accept themselves more. I know that there's been a lot of research linking trauma, especially in the formative years, to brain development and the way that trauma can change a developing brain. 
is that informing a lot of the practices that you're teaching teachers about? Absolutely. I think we talk about the brain responses and I think it's not that the brain is permanently changed as some people talk about, but that our way that our brain has been wired is set up for survival and that can de- that can go against our ability to learn. If we're wired to look at a situation as dangerous and to respond in order to be safe and survive, we're not in the perfect conditions to focus on on the content that's being delivered. Uh, one of the things that we talk about is um, helping children understand what's happening in their brain. We play a lot of brain games with staff and students on the impact of the amygdala. And you look at it as a survival skill and not a weakness. And then you build some tools around that. One of the other things that trauma does to a child's sense of self is that children who are experiencing trauma at a young age, they're very egocentric. So any experience they have, whether it's neglect or exposure to domestic violence, or we have an opioid epidemic going on in this nation. If you have a parent who's impacted by that, children don't understand that. They don't understand those big abstract factors that are impacting their family and their community. All that they understand is that it's happening to them. So there's a tendency when children go through trauma for them to blame themselves for that situation. Like if I had been a better kid, this wouldn't have happened. And they internalize that often without realizing it. And we see that narrative kind of take place in our classroom, that if a child thinks that they are unlovable or that when bad things happen, that's what they deserve, it it makes it difficult to build relationships with them. And you'll see that their behavior matches what they think about themselves. And so if we punish a child, if we... we, um, shame them in any way for their behavior, it reinforces that negative belief in themselves. So even more than the brain science, I think it's that developmental psychology that we need to understand that kind of drives meaningful change. So what I often tell educators to do is we can show kids that we love them no matter what. Teachers often will praise kids when they're behaving well, but that doesn't change a child's sense of self. When they're behaving well and they get rewarded or they get praise or a good call home, all they believe is, oh, yeah, you like me when I'm doing when I'm doing the right thing. The really hard but powerful thing is that we have to love kids even when they're difficult to love. When a child is behaving badly, maybe they have talked back in class or you know, have been aggressive, whatever it is, if we can show them that we care about them in that moment, we can set boundaries, we can have consequences, but those consequences have to be rooted in love and compassion. When we do that, we can change a child's sense of self. They suddenly believe that they're worthy of love because we've loved them in a moment when when it's been hard to do that. So that I think is the more powerful message, even beyond the brain science. The brain science is really important. It's, under, it's important to understand how the frontal lobe is impacted by the amygdala and how we can flip our lids and what our triggers are. But the deeper message there about relationships is that we have to show love even when it's hard. I wonder too, like in a, in a school system that has become almost increasingly punitive, not with the strap, but you hear about, you know, 
first graders being arrested in their classrooms and mandatory suspensions for smaller behaviors. Is there a way, like how can a teacher communicate in a system that is really punitive to their colleagues or to their principal why they don't want to suspend this kid for throwing a tantrum, why they'd rather keep them in the classroom? It's a great point. Our system is not set up to be trauma-informed. I don't think our nation is set up to be trauma-informed. That's why we have a school-to-prison pipeline and the highest prison population per capita of anywhere in the world. It's because we're, we're set up to, to have this mindset where we need to punish bad behavior and shame that behavior. And it's really hard to change that. In And it's not necessarily the individual's fault within a system, but when we go along with that system, we just kind of reinforce that. And so the deeper work of being trauma-informed is rooted in social justice. It's rooted in deepening our awareness of the impact of our discipline policies, our own behavior, our own biases on our students and our families, and and taking the time to reflect on that and think about what we can do differently. And that takes a moment. It's kind of like the Brene Brown moment of you have to acknowledge that you've done things in a way that may have harmed others. And you can carry a little bit of shame from that. But if you meet shame with self-compassion, Maya Angelou says that um, we do the best we can until we know better. And when we know better, we do better. So when we start to see that our traditional way of responding to behavior and our discipline policies are not actually serving kids with trauma and they're actually re-traumatizing children, we have to change, but we have to acknowledge that it can be painful to, for people to, to change because it ha- we have to admit that we've done something wrong. That's a, that's a big hurdle for trauma-informed educators. When we're training people all over the country, they, they get to that point where they realize the discipline policy that's in place is harmful and they want it to change, but people take it personally. Change is, change is hard to do and it takes time. You have to find other people in your community that are like-minded. It could be the principal, it could be another teacher, it could be the school counselor, and you kind of work together to pilot different models and show that it works. And, and over time, hopefully you can, you can change that system. But some states, some uh, school districts, it's more deeply embedded than others, that zero tolerance policy that you talk about. So it, it's a long-term project to change those things. And as an end goal, like what would be the perfect system for a trauma-informed system? Is it like a restorative justice model? You know, it takes so many forms. So we said there's not one formula. My experience, I worked for eight years in a middle school in California that had had documentaries made about it because the school climate was so poor. It was a community deeply impacted by violence and poverty, but above all, it was underfunded, under-resourced, and had a high turnover of the staff. And so we came in, we built a full-service community school. I had a team of therapists that work with me. We implemented restorative justice. We implemented mindfulness. So many great practices. And our climate did get better, but at the end of the day, we still had a high turnover rate of our staff. You know, every year I was training 75 staff members in collaborative problem solving, and we'd lose 25 of them 
I'd have to start that all over again. So a trauma-informed school takes many forms and there's not one formula. Uh, I think we just have to reflect over time on kind of those six principles of trauma-informed practices and how they're working in our schools and get a lot of feedback from our students and our staff and our families to see if we're, we're meeting those needs. Um, so we use the guide principles that come from SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. So those principles are safety, collaboration, trustworthiness, choice, empowerment, and we call it social justice, but it's um, really addressing those historical, cultural, and gender issues that have been embedded in our systems that re-traumatize people. So if we look at that framework and we look at our community, there are many different paths to resilience and many different paths to being trauma-informed. And for September, hopefully, when students are walking into a, a school building that they last left not knowing that they wouldn't be back for the rest of the school year, obviously that is going to bring a lot of trauma with them, whether it was what their experiences were at home of, of job loss or loss of, of life in their family, or even just the upsetting of the norm at such a vulnerable age. How can teachers start off the year so that they are making sure to acknowledge and help students deal with that trauma? It's a great question. I think one of the number one things is that people want to be seen and heard. They want their experience to be acknowledged. That greatly reduces the impact of trauma and adversity. So allowing children to talk about their experience is important and just make connections with each other and, and feel seen as a person instead of come in and you, you've fallen so far behind, you have to catch up and the priority is on, you know, putting all this pressure on them for compliance and focused on academics. If we give them space to connect with each other again, give them space just to talk and share, that's going to really help them reduce that anxiety and, and reduce the impact of trauma. And that involves like a healthy relationship. It's also about giving them opportunities for meaningful participation. There's a researcher, Bonnie Bernard, that looked at three factors of resilience. One is those caring relationships. The other is maintaining high expectations, knowing that someone can do it no matter what, but also uh, meaningful participation. And that's giving kids activities that allow them to, you know, to have agency and to have choice and have some control over their environment. This time is a, is a time when children have lost so much control over their lives they, they didn't choose not to play with their friends anymore. They didn't choose to stop going to school. They didn't choose not to do activities that they love. So it's going to be totally normal for them right now to want to go back into the classroom and to have some of that control. It's like a, it's a natural human desire. And so we've got to find opportunities to give them that, to give them that agency. And that could be free play. You know, free play gives us a lot of agency and control. It can be collaborating with them on assignments and giving them choice. It can be giving them activities that allow them to give back to others and help others. So there's a lot of different ways that we can promote agency, but we've got to be creative and it will push us to 
um, really listen to and connect with our students and be culturally responsive to find what's meaningful for them. I think the other side of the COVID and uh, distance education is some students and families are realizing that it was actually the school that was the trauma and that being at home where they are either away from instances where they're being bullied or they're finally able to explore avenues of education that they enjoy or they're getting access to information that is culturally relevant to them and not just a colonizer's perspective, how can we help them re-enter a trauma space? I mean, it's, it's a good point to acknowledge that schools can traumatize students and that white supremacy culture is part of our curriculum often, and we have to do a lot of work to change that. One of the tools that, that we use is reflection, that to disrupt bias, to promote equity in our communities, we have to take time to think about what we're doing. And as educators, we're not given that time often. Our meetings are chock full of an agenda where we're looking at data points and we're we're lesson planning. And we really need to make that time and space to think about what's happening, how we're responding, and to, to look at different options of how we can respond and to feel safe to do that. So we use a model called reflective supervision that I wish was in every school. It's just a a peer support space where people come together and they talk about the work, they talk about the impact on themselves, and they reflect on what's happening and how they can change. In order to change a system that we've been in, we have to we have to take a lot of time to to reflect and be coached to make that change. So otherwise we're just kind of reacting and and redoing the system that we've been part of. You know, all of our years of schooling and education and college, that's what's impacting us more than our, our training as an educator sometimes in the classroom. And to really reflect on our own experiences and change them requires some, some intentionality. So I think that's a big piece moving forward. If we want to create schools that don't re-traumatize, that are healing spaces, we're going to need to create some time to reflect on on the work that we do and how it impacts people. I found this incredibly informative, but also very optimistic. It's given me a clear light of there there are ways forward and there. um, So I really appreciate uh, you talking with me today. Is there anything you wanted to add that we haven't covered that you think that teachers should know or consider? Yeah, I just think reframing trauma instead of looking at it through a deficit lens and looking at children as, you know, we've shifted the, the conversation from what's wrong with you to what has happened to you. But now I really think we need to to move beyond what's happened to children and look at what is amazing about our kids and to to celebrate that, that children who've experienced trauma and now even unfortunately, even more people are impacted by that. Those are survivors. Those are kids with very powerful survival skills. And we need to reframe how we look at behaviors, whether it's saying no, or it's seeking control, or even if it's like, having a trigger response. Those are those are powerful survival skills that we want to kind of honor and 
help empower kids to build more skills. So that's kind of a strength-based lens that people who can transform adversity often are leaders in our society, people who have found a path forward. So we need to to honor that adversity isn't just something that impairs you and holds you back. It can be something that makes you a stronger, more empathetic member of our society. So there's a concept of post-traumatic growth. That means that we learn that we're all connected. We learn that we can get through tough things and we want to um, celebrate that in our students and give them opportunities to, to be resilient in our schools. I know that there's going to be a lot of people listening who want to find out more about this. Where do you recommend that they, they search out that information? So our organization is the Center for Cognitive Diversity. We have a website, cognitive.com. And we have a lot of like resources on there, uh, information about our program. And I'm also on Twitter. I'm Emily at EdPsych, or our organization is at Cognitive Center. So we'd love to connect and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be here. Thank you so much, Aviva. That was Agent Emily Santiago with why being trauma-informed gives students the space to become resilient, involved learners who feel like they have agency in an unpredictable world. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will be available along with links to resources we mentioned and information about previous special agents at lessonimpossible.com. Now, if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues or reading and reviewing it on your podcast listening app. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. <laughs>